I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Greed, deception, abuse of power, that's no plan. They, they just gatekeep knowledge, you know? They're, they're to total masters of deception. They manipulate everything. You know, these, these pricks at the helm have lied to us. It's... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. They're, they're setting it up for the Great Deception. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all revolves around the Great Deception. Yeah, right? it, bingo. And L.A. and I talked about that. I said, L.A., is this the Great Deception? And he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. I never used to question before, and now I question everything. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. The world needs a wake-up call. Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Tonight, guys, we have a fun one. This is a deep dive into a little piece of Chicago that I wasn't familiar with. And I've, you guys know my love and affinity for Chicago in the 1800s. And I've dug deep into the history, so to speak, of, of some of the Chicago architecture I've looked at the World Fair, up, down, and sideways. I've looked at the Great Fire. And somehow, and, and I also, another thing that I figured would have crossed paths is I've looked into the Crystal Palaces. You go back to, what is it, episode 10 or 11 of this show, and we did a whole presentation on the different Crystal Palaces and how amazingly every single one of them burnt down. Well... This is right in that time frame. And in Chicago, in 1873, they built a glass palace that stood for nearly 20 years and then was torn down. Another one of these really, really interesting stories. So we'll get into that here in a second. But first, I want to uh, thank you guys. Uh, I want to thank the newest patrons. I want to thank Dustin. I want to thank Joseph Anderson, Mashi McEwen, and Chef Armstrong. Guys, I appreciate it. Anybody that wants to help out the show, contribute to the show. There are links in the show notes for in my link tree for like PayPal and Venmo. But the best way to do it is uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash the great deception podcast and out there i have some patron only shows that i've done appearances on other shows that are really great there's one on the electric universe that we just did with dave zed and brandon thomas of expanding reality 
and our good buddy Matthew Smith from uh, the Marvelous Old World podcast. So go check out the Patreon. I, I have a ton of books out there. We have all the Monday Night Masturbator videos. It's it's starting to become a cool little community over there. And and for being a patron, every month I host a Zoom meeting call where you are free to come and go as you please. We usually have about usually about three hours worth on a uh, Friday night. Hop in when you want, say hi, share some ideas, shoot the shit, or just sit back and listen. Doesn't really matter. Um, but we really have a great group of people here, uh, and the patron calls are. Other than masturbators, my favorite part of doing the show, um, because I've met some really cool people. We've linked some really cool people with each other, uh, and and that's what this is all about, guys. Making connections, expanding this, not necessarily mindset, but this uh, ability to think and get back to logical thinking. Get rid of the illogical. Get back to the natural way. Get away from the synthetic bullshit. So the other thing, the other way to help the show, leave reviews. Okay, on Google, you can go click, you go to the, the Great Deception page on Google, and then you click the five stars there right on the on the thing. And then on Apple, you can go in and leave a review. We got two new reviews. I got one from uh, Quantum Soul. It says, awesome show. Uh, love your show, especially the old earth Starfort stuff. Keep up the great work. I also love Monday Night Master Debaters. Ryan, you are awesome and got me into Rise Show as well. Well, I'm glad. Go check out the Dangerous World podcast. Ryan does a great job over there. I, I mean, he's doing four to six shows a week, it seems. So go check out that as well. Got another review from our good friend over at the Strange Neighborhood podcast. And it says, not only is this show a great source of old world mysteries and clues from our hidden past, but Matt is an invested member of the truther community. And he's always willing to chat about subjects and share his thoughts and ideas. Sharing clues is how we will piece together our puz uh, this puzzle of ours. So true. And that's what I love about this. Meeting people like you. Other people who have these ideas that go against this bullshit narrative and that and start piece taking the puzzle and piecing things together and saying wait a second this doesn't add up this doesn't make sense and well that's kind of a perfect segue into tonight's show because this glass palace of chicago of 1873 makes no sense but again we're we're fed a narrative that's questionable there's some shady characters involved. There's some unbelievable timelines. And it's, I mean, okay, so just looking at it, and guys, I highly recommend going over to Spotify or the Patreon and, and checking this episode out. Look at it. It looks like a, a, crystal, a crystal palace, okay? And if you don't remember, all right, what what are the crystal palaces? Well, in London, in 1851, we had the original crystal palace. And this thing was massive. It was covered 18 acres, almost a million square feet of exhibition space. Um, it was 1,851 feet long, had an interior height of 128 feet, and contained over 
3,300, there's that 33 iron columns and incorporated 10 million feet of glass, 600,000 cubic feet of timber. I mean, this is a massive structure, guys. And it said this was a modern uh, representation of modern architecture and modern industry that was developing with the Industrial Revolution. And the uh, structure was three times the size of St. Paul's Cathedral. And anybody knows St. Paul's Cathedral? It's large. Now, here's the kicker. It was constructed in six to nine months. Now, not only that, it was developed in 10 days. Paxton came up with the idea in 10 days for this. This massive structure, this glass, which at the time was just beginning to be mass produced. Okay. And they only had 2,000 men working on it, but they got it done in six, in six to nine months. Seems reasonable. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about it is when it was done, they tore it down and they moved it. And so they moved it from London over to Sidon. And it's like, okay. And and when they put it over there, they had it, used it as a palace school of art, science, and literature, and the Crystal Palace School of Engineering. So for seven decades, it was on display. And then, of course, it was burned in a fire. Now, one that looks very similar to the Chicago glass palace we'll call it is the new york crystal palace of 1853 so we look at this one and again this one was constructed in less than seven months now granted the size of it is basically a fifth of what the glass uh, crystal palace in london was but still they're constructing these i mean look at this thing it's not like it's some shanty that was just thrown up and it said, this will be gathered here, the choicest products of the luxury of the old world and the most cunning devices of ingenuity in the new world. So what they're showing you here is that this is, this is what the world's fairs are all about, right? Giving you a glimpse of the old world and then showing you what they're going to be replacing it with. And, and again, that that's kind of, Along the lines of all this stuff, when we start really looking into it, it's, you see, time and time again, it's fair after fair. It's the same thing over and over again. Okay, so we look at these. Now, this glass palace was built with the idea of the London Crystal Palace and the New York crystal palace in mind when they were constructing it when they were developing it and when they decided to host this but what we have to remember is we moved to 1871 you have the great chicago fire okay now we we've gone over that as well in detail we did three episodes on the fires of 1871 in in the lake michigan area huge fire right 3.3 square miles burnt not not a huge death toll in Chicago, but what it did do, it built it burnt a lot of the records, and you saw these brick. I mean, they say that a lot of these buildings were wood. Go go back to that episode that I did and check out those buildings. 
There's a lot of brick buildings that were blown up like they were bombed. I mean, look down here below. Look at this. Does this look like, you know, a fire or a war scene? I mean, that kind of looks like Hiroshima or Nagasaki. You got a couple buildings, couple structures standing. And then again, guys, every now and then you'll see a tree or a telephone pole that survived. These massive fires, it's amazing. So think about the devastation in 1873, right? So you're 1871. So what are we going to do? Our focus is going to be on rebuilding. And that's the whole thing behind Chicago is this rebuild, this uh, phoenix, right? Rising from the ashes. That's what we get over and over in Chicago. And now, following the fire, as Chicago's just starting to get back on its feet, in about May of 1873, the panic of 1873 hits, which is a one of many crashes in the 1800s. Okay, so the panic of 1873 came about because of railroad investments. Uh, railroads had expanded rap rapidly during the 19th century, and investors in many early projects had earned high returns. As the gild Gilded Age progressed, investment in railroads continued but new projects outpaced demand for new capacity and returns on railroad investments declined. In May and September of 1873, stock market crashes in Vienna, Austria, prompted European investors to divest their holdings of American securities, particularly railroad bonds. Their divestment depressed the market, lowered the prices on stocks and bonds, and impeded financing for railroad firms. Without cash to finance operations and refinance debts that came due, many railroad firms failed. Others defaulted on payments due to banks. This turmoil forced Jay Cook and Company, a notable merchant bank, into bankruptcy on September 18th. The bank was heavily invested in railroads, particularly the Northern Pacific Railroad, a railway. Now, what's interesting about this is, again, so we're talking his bank failed on the 18th. This fair is going to kick off on the 25th of September, a week after. So after this great crash, we're going to have a kickoff for this great palace. And again, what did we mention before? This is just a kind of a high-level overview of Chicago before or after the fire, I should say, and then after the restoration. Look at the difference, right right off the bat. Just look at the remnants of the old buildings, and then look at these cubes, these square, disgusting, lifeless buildings they put in their place. It just shows you, again, intentional. Now, look at this. Well, where would you say this picture looks like? Now, those of you listening, we have uh, what appears to be a lake or a sea with some sailboats. Um, we have the railway right along the coast. And then we have this just massive structure with multiple domes and antennas on the roofs. Beautiful uh, red roofs, I mean, in this picture. And it's just, a. it looks like something out of, you know, what you would say is old Europe which, you know, may, may be some of the old U.S. when we get down to it. 
maybe there was stuff here before, but this is this one right here is is just one that interests me. So let's get into a little backstory of this. So it said the fact that we have to have an exposition was now fixed. So these investors, this group of guys in Chicago came together and they decided that out of the fire, they needed to have this great exposition to show off all that Chicago had to offer. You know, meanwhile, they're supposed to be rebuilding Chicago, getting it back on its feet. But hey, don't worry about that. We're going to have this massive exposition. We're going to build the biggest building, the biggest convention building in America at the time. And we're going to do it when there's a financial crisis going on. Just a lot of things that make you scratch your head when you think about it. Okay, so here we go. The next meeting was held the 1st of March at the Sherman House when H.H. Taylor offered a resolution that an exposition be held during the following fall in a building to be erected at Lake Park and the capital stock be fixed at 150000 This was adopted at once. The capital stock afterwards was increased by resolution to two hundred fifty k. So they're looking for a quarter million dollars to build this. They're looking to raise it. And so... Um, there's this gentleman named uh, G.O.S. Bowen, who is one of the big players behind all this. And he convinces this gentleman, James Nolan, to send a letter to get this thing going. So he says, there will be a meeting of the manufacturers of Chicago at the Gardner House on Monday evening, February 24th. And mind you, this is February 24th of 1873. To consider the matter of holding an exposition in our city this year in connection with the exposition of the Woolen Manufacturers Association. Manufacturers receiving this circular will please reply at once and forward any suggestions that you may have in reference to the importance of holding an exposition this year, which will embrace all classes of industry. The meeting will consider the expediency of changing the name of the association so it may embrace manufacturers of not uh, alone textile fabrics in the West and South, but of all classes of manufacturing interests. The question of having Western and Southern textile productions represented in the forthcoming centennial at Philadelphia, also whether it is practical or desirable for the manufacturers to send samples to the Vienna Exposition by order of the committee from James Nolan. Now, again, you're seeing the Centennial uh, is the um, Philadelphia Exposition that we went over in our uh, U.S. World Fairs episode back then, too. So we're starting to see the different players. The ball is starting to roll on this. Okay, now, again, let's go back and look at this because this is one of the things that I keep going over and over and over. It just doesn't add up. We start looking at the population numbers. Now, you go back to 1830, which is just seven years prior to this, and I have other charts like this, but this is uh, one from the recent research. It's 50 people in 1830, but yet somehow they're doing around $20 million worth of business for 50 people. Very confusing. But so at the time of the fair, we're looking at about 350,000 population of Chicago, okay, in 1873, after the fire and everything. And so we're getting there. It's starting to grow, you're seeing. You're seeing that little bounce back, that rise from the ashes. So now, what gets this fair going? It's the investors, obviously. I mean, these guys are 
these are the guys in the bowler hats, the guys who have one hand in their pocket. These are the guys who are in control. These are the big players at the time, whether it be Chicago or elsewhere. So the investors, prominent Chicago businessmen, including uh, Potter Palmer, Cyrus H. McCormick, and R.T. Crane, intended the exhibition to highlight current manufactured goods across a very broad spectrum, such as brick-making machines, carriages and wagons, fire extinguishers, and sewing and diamond-cutting machines. Many of the manufacturers and vendors were based in Chicago or had regional offices in the city. So that's one of the, th- the big differences you'll see between this exposition and the World's Fair in 1893. In 1893, Daniel Burnham brought in a lot of outsiders, and that pissed a lot of people off. Brought in a lot of New Yorkers, brought in uh, Hunt from Kansas City, brought people from all over America to kind of bring in the best of the best. This were mainly Chicago local guys. Okay, and what were they putting out? They are going to put out what is called the Interstate Industrial Exposition of Chicago. And it ran from 1873 until 1891. So good 18-year, 19-year run. Now in the inauguration. Um, I don't know why this says 1979. That's not right. But it says uh, the Great Exposition Building will be open to the public at 7 o'clock Wednesday, September 3rd, with every department complete and forming the grandest display of triumphs of science, industry, and art ever yet attained. Music by the Loesch Orchestra. Admission, 25 cents. Now, again, think about the time. We're talking about the 1870s. Right? You walk up on this building you roll up on this building that is 800 feet long 200 feet wide and 160 foot dome and you're gonna feel like this is it's like walking up to cinderella's castle in in disneyland right it's just something that's going to be a spectacle it's going to catch your eyes you're gonna it's going to make you wonder now Let's get start digging into this a little bit to the backstory of it. So we start looking at the money. Well, what's interesting about this is it lost money initially, right? And you you know how these people are. They do not like to lose money. So if they're losing money, this has a greater purpose. And I guess here you could say they were in it for the long run, right? They wanted to to play this out. Unlike the World Fair that was there for a quick hit, six months and it was gone, this thing was built to last and to endure and to to show off Chicago for the next however many years. So we're looking right here at some different financial statements from the fair, uh, just some different costs. Down here we have a... a a list of all the contractors and how much they got paid. You know, you're looking at some of these different names and it's fun just to look at this stuff. It doesn't really, nothing really sticks out to me about these numbers. That's, that's unreasonable or irrational or crazy. I mean, all these seem pretty straightforward for the time. Um, But then when we start getting into the interesting backstory of this, it, it gets really weird. So let's, let's get into it a little bit. So before McCormick Place, 
which is another um, expo arena. The Glass Palace of Chicago, as it was known, would, would be the largest building on the continent until it was replaced in 1893 by the manufacturer's uh, building in the World Fair. But some 87 years before McCormick Place, Chicago had a grand exposition building. On September 25th, 1872, the Chicago International Industrial Exposition Building opened on Michigan Ave, now the site of the Art Institute. This huge convention center opened just two years after the Great Fire destroyed over 17,000 buildings. That's why this says September 25th, 1872. It's actually 1873. Um the fire was in 1871, two years after it would be 1873. The Glass Palace, as it was known, was to show how much the city had recovered following the Great Fire. It was built the largest structure ever built on the American continent. With 220,000 square feet of ex exhibit space, it held the title until 1893 World's Fair, where the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building was built even seven times bigger. That's why, guys, when we start talking about this... Talking about that World Fair, how that building, that manufacturer's building could hold 300,000 people. It's seven times bigger than this building. And they built 199 other buildings with that one in less than two years. But that seems reasonable, right? Anyway, back to this one. The architect of this was William W. Boyington. Uh, born July 22nd, 1818 in Massachusetts and learned his trade as a young man in New York. He trained first as a carpenter, then studied engineering and architecture. He's well known for many buildings such as the Board of Trade, Joliet Penitentiary, the Sherman House, the State Capitol at Springfield, as well as the National Historic Landmark Rose Hill Cemetery entrance in 1864 and the Chicago Water Tower in 1869. Now, guys, this guy must be a brilliant architect engineer because go google the rose hill cemetery entrance this is not your normal cemetery entrance this is a spectacle look at the chicago water tower that he supposedly built in 1869 that's another amazing structure and then down here right here you'll see the Sher new sherman house that he built okay i mean these it, it, we're not it, this guy must have been a genius but the expo uh, was open to the public in, in September of 1873, and the receipts from the sales of the tickets and other sources that year was 175 k However, the total expenditures was 345 k So it was a deficit of about 170 k leaving them in the red. However, by 1877, they would um, be a money-making operation a self-sufficient money-making operation okay so now the building itself cost 280k remember they were trying to raise 250k it cost a little more than they expected which is usually the case when you do any construction but it was built in only 90 days 90 days think about today you can't even get permits barely in 90 days they built this giant glass palace in 90 days. The building dominated Chicago's lakefront, standing 800 feet from Lake uh, Michigan Avenue between Adams and Jackson. It was located on the grounds of where the current Art Institute of Chicago now stands. 
where the Palace of Fine Arts was for the World's Fair. The main entrance was on Adam Street. On the side facing Lake Michigan, there were two entrances uh, on either side of the carriage exit. There were three domes patterned after exhibition buildings in London and New York, which are the two glass palaces. The center dome was 140 feet in height. There were two other domes, one each at north and south of the building. With the exception of the bricks in the main walls, the building was composed of glass and iron. Right? Crystal Palace. That's exactly what they were. They were glass and iron. The exhibition building was divided into eight major sections, each representing a category of manufacturing, fine arts, sciences, or services. In addition to the massive exhibit space, the four-story building contained offices, an art hall, a musician's gallery, a branch post office, a Western Union, and express companies. There was a 50-cent admission for adults, $25 on Saturdays. Both the Republican and Democratic parties held their 1884 conventions in this building. Grover Cleveland became president as a result of that election. So this building has a little history behind it. Now, the interesting thing is, much like the World's Fairs and the Crystal Palaces of past, only one thing survives. And the only thing that survived the demolition was this fountain, okay? Uh, it was in, uh, built in 1872 by J.W. Uh, Fisk Ironworks in New York City at a cost of about $5,000. So if it was $5,000 in 1872, 1873, that's a pretty expensive uh, 1873. This freaking sheet totally ruined the dates. I don't know why. But again, look at this. Look over here on the right-hand side. Look at the building. Look at the size compared to the people. Look at the detail. And we'll get into that a little more as we look at some of these. But Chicago, right? It's one of those, one of those cities with a lot of history, a lot of stories. So history tells us of not a city since the world began that has taken such a leading place in the commerce of the world in so short a time as has the city of Chicago. And it's an, it is entirely unnecessary to add how much of this is due to many eminent merchants and manufacturers, those who have, by untiring industry and the strict attention to their affairs, enlarged their business and increased their stock until palatial warehouses reared as monuments to their enterprise and were filled with innumerable goods of value and artistic beauty not only from our own country, but from many foreign ones. Think about that, guys. That's what we have become. That's what this industrial age has pushed in. The idea or the concept of consumerism, innumerable, innumerable goods of values and artistic beauty, right? You just, you want more, you want to have it all and you want to hold it. Now, why do we have to have foreign artifacts in our country? Right? I've always, that, that thing has always bothered me because you know they stole those artifacts. Most of those countries aren't like, yeah, sure, take them. Why don't you take our history with you, right? No, they steal the shit. So the businessmen of Chicago have the deserved reputation both at home and abroad of being extraordinary men of business capacity, 
judgment, and enterprise, and in the rearing of immense exposition building in the short space of 90 days, Chicago has shown enterprise unparalleled throughout the world, and our city stands today preeminently forth without a rival as the wonder and marvel of the age. Right? This is kind of kicking some dirt over at New York to say, hey, listen, we're not the second city. We're, we're number one. But in reality, they're still number two. The exposition was formally thrown open to the public on the evening of Thursday, September 25th. It was estimated that there were 25,000 people in attendance during that night. And the uh, enthusiasm of the vast assemblage was everywhere throughout the hall, marked and emphatic expressions of commendation and admirable success of the executive committee in the prompt and satisfactory, satisfactory execution of their great undertaking were heard on all uh, hands. And the people of Chicago were justly jubilant and proud of the result. Like these people were bumping. I mean, think about that. You, you've you just got out of the war or the war, the fire, which could be seen as a war. Um, and then economic times are up and down. May, you had you had the panic. Now we're back in September where panic is ramped up again. This is in the middle of an economic panic. So imagine banks failing and all of a sudden we're going to throw an exposition. Very interesting timing. So now you want to dig into the building a little bit. Now, one of the things about this Okay, like I said in the intro, there wasn't a lot of information on this fair. I mean, I, I went out there and I, I've been digging for a couple of weeks now. I was able to find three books. I found two books with some detail in it and one sketchbook. So if if anybody else finds more information on this, guys, I've been digging, I was trying to dig through the archives to find something on the construction. This was really the only thing I could find in the construction. I couldn't find anything on the destruction of it other than a line or two. And, you know, there's a lot of, there uh, There was a ton of information on the, um, you know, the exhibits, the exhibitors, the idea, the concept behind the fair, but the details of the fair, again, kind of sparse. So I'd love to get more information, but... I wanted to bring this to you guys. Like I said, I had I got two books from the 1870s on this, um, and then a third sketchbook that has some drawings and some picture photos from the era. Um, but so the building itself, uh, it began the construction began on the 16th of June, right? Now remember, it opened on the 25th of September. So what are we talking? June to July, July to August, August to September. Three months. Again, what are we building in three months nowadays? It takes them three months to fix the potholes out in our street sometimes. Three months, 90 days, they built this building. It's amazing, okay? So... The plans were furnished, as we said, by Mr. Boynton. And, and of course, he did it on very short notice. And they were immediately accepted by the committee. So Mr. W.L. Carroll was appointed superintendent of construction 
on the part of the board. The contractors were required to finish the building and have it ready for occupancy by September 15th, 10 days before it was to open. And they would receive a $1,000 bonus for every day it was done prior to that day. And But on the other hand, they would have to pay $1,000 for every day it was late. Ah, man, imagine if construction worked that way today. Ooh, there wouldn't be a whole lot of construction going on anymore. Under these circumstances, the work progressed with all possible rapidity. The contractors putting on all the men who could find room to work. Again, but it was only, a, there wasn't that many people that were working on it. A couple hundred, maybe a thousand or so, 2,000 working on this thing. The building is 200 feet wide, 800 feet long. It reaches from Monroe to Jackson Street, a distance of two blocks. It is as large as the Cincinnati and Louisville expositions put together. And the old Crystal Palace in New York could be set inside of it. Okay, and again, that took about 90 days to build as well, that Crystal Palace in New York, according to the story. It was found necessary to drive piles for the foundation, the ground being made. Again, we saw this at the Chicago World Fair. Remember the pictures where they just had, it looked like telephone poles strewn throughout the swamp. And that's what they're going to use for a foundation for this massive building. Drive piles. All right. Interesting. You might want to get into some bedrock if you're really building this thing. But hey, what do I know? I'm I'm just a uh, conspiracy theorist. These piles were of oak a little less than two feet in diameter and 20 feet long. There are six of them under either end of each of the arches, making over 300 of them used for this purpose alone, while there are an indefinite number under the foundations of the building. Okay, so think about that in itself, all right? These guys are driving piles in 1870s, over 300 of them used for the arches on either end. And it says an indefinite number under the other foundations of the building. And they did that in under under 90 days. <laughs> just think about that, okay? And this is why I, I tell you guys to, to just rationalize this because it just doesn't make sense. In a time when they're using levees and or pulleys and levers. We're going to pound over 300 and then indefinite number. And we're going to do it in less than 90 days and build the whole building. The design of the building is virtually new. None of its salient features have uh, having been copied from any other plan of a like affair. The rounded roof is supported by 41 how trusses 20 feet apart. The six piles upon which either end rests are capped by oak timbers, 12 by 14 inches in thickness, and the likes capped four feet in length. The main sills, which extend across the building and support the trusses at each end, rest side by side upon these caps. Now, the spring of the arch is placed four feet above the floor or seven feet above the main sill. Each truss has a diameter of 150 feet. The distance of the top of the arch from the floor is 80 feet. 
These trusses are composed of uh, three thicknesses of inch and three quarters plant for the upper and lower courses. The diagonal braces are three by 12 inches. For the first 28 feet in height on either end, they are built solid. The arches are sustained by diagonal tie rods and the lowering rod 54 feet from the floor. The back walls are 24 feet in height and stand 15 feet outside the line of the trusses of the foundation. These are the exterior walls of the first story. Receding from these walls are a lean-to, or shed roof, touching the main trusses of the spring and the main roof, which for 17 feet above the point of contact is built of hammered glass. The rest of the roof uh, above that is galvanized iron. The end domes are 48 feet square with and 32 feet high to the base of the lantern, which is 140 feet above the floor. The lanterns each have a height superior to its dome of 16 feet so that the floor to the summit is an elevation of 156 feet. Under the center of the main dome is a magnificent uh, fountain placed in the middle of the basin, 40 feet in diameter, and this is the one that survived. It is profusely ornamented and surrounded by rarest of plants and flowers, interspersed by uh, with statuary, other fountain, or another fountain scarcely less elegant is placed under the south dome in the floral department. The building, inside and out, will be trimmed, painted, and frescoed into becoming beauty. Ingress and egress, light and air, are provided for by 18 doors and 152 windows. The entire available space for the purpose of displays is 5 and 8 tenths acres. The uh, floor room is 253, 936 square feet, or feet being uh, over half more than the contained in the Great Palace in New York. It covers nearly two acres more than the Boston Coliseum, has nearly 100,000 more uh, floor space than the Cincinnati Exposition Building, leaving out our galleries and counting theirs, and is immeasurably superior not only in size, but in beauty of shape, convenience, durability, and general arrangement to any like structure on this side of the Atlantic. The building is put upon ground, which was donated to the city of Chicago by the general government for the purpose of a public park. Its present use is contrary to the conditions of the transfer, but the purpose is such a laudable one that no one can raise objection to the continuance of the building upon its present site after the year has expired, the time for which the city has grant, uh, city council has granted its use to the exposition. Now, this is interesting. Okay, two parts. One, where they're kind of, you know, bragging and rubbing in New York's face. This seems kind of like a penis waving contest. Like, hey, who's got the biggest dick in the room? You know, it's one of those. Like, who cares? Yeah, you built it bigger. Oh, ours is bigger. Ours is better. Yeah, like, all right, I guess. But then you look at this second piece where it says it was donated to the city of Chicago by the government for the purpose of a public park. And although they're not using it as a public park, because this is such a worthy cause, admirable, we'll just forget about the rules and we'll do it anyway. There's something to that. There's something to that land now that they've taken it over and are not going to give it back. 
because as we see, they just keep building upon this spot. So there's some significance to this spot. And I have to keep digging more to find the history behind it. But this piece of land right here, just off the lake, is very significant because they keep putting significant structures on it time and time again. However, it is so, here we go again, it is so constructed that it may be taken down and removed to another locality at comparatively little cost. So this building that they just threw up in three months is, you know, so amazingly constructed that it's going to last for almost 20 years. But it could be taken down and rebuilt somewhere else at little cost and with ease. <laughs> Guys, this just sounds sounds like bullshit. It's the same thing they said about London, right? That you can tear it down and move it. Same thing they said about some of the Canadian um, crystal palaces. I just don't buy it. Okay. So, okay. It is such a beautiful structure, however, and such an ornament to the park and so much in keeping with the general idea of the public uh, beneficence, which prompted the generous act on the part of the government that no citizen of Chicago or elsewhere will be apt to raise a voice against it and demand its removal. It is to be hoped that the building of the great in interstate industrial exposition will remain upon the lakefront for many years to come. And it will, surprisingly. So here we go, the second anniversary. So they made it through the first year. You get to 1874. And again, you'll see the layout. It's a basic standard cigar-shaped layout. But the exterior of the building is, is amazing. I mean, the domes are intricate. It's just... Now coins okay i love looking at old coins because they tend to tell a little bit of a story and so you look at the um we'll start kind of backwards and you look at the bottom and this is chicago burning with an angel up above and uh and it's basically saying you know this is the the marking of us at the industrial exposition rebuilding chicago getting it back on its feet and then you'll see some other coins here with the building itself and then eagle in one of them the typical eagle with the olive branches in its hand and its uh, claws and the snake in its mouth and again guys if we look at the inversion that snake i'm not buying that the snake is the devil it's evil i'm going with knowledge I really believe that the snake represents knowledge and that's what they're trying to keep from us. That's what they're trying to destroy. Separate us from the natural ways. Separate us from the old ways. So we look and there were tremendous crowds, right? They said they got 25,000 people the first day. This was the spectacle. People wanted to come and see it. Now, did they come in the numbers that they did for the uh, World Fair? No. I don't think this was meant to be that way. I think this was kind of a precursor to see. This was the litmus test. See what kind of reaction they got for this fair. And, you know, from what I can tell, the reaction was outstanding. People loved it. I mean, it lasted for almost 20 years. And, I mean, just look at this, this rendering. 
the building, this dance hall is beautiful. I mean, you look at it, you have a nice castle in the background and just a beautiful glass structure, that massive fountain in the middle with the amazing flowers around it. It's just, it's a sight to see and it's multi-leveled. There's a second level to this. Now, some of the things, right? The appearance of the exposition is by far more impressive and pleasing than that of anything of the kind ever gotten up in this country. Some lofty words right there. This is owing in great degree to the admirable architectural arrangement of the building, the whole display, with the exception of the art gallery, being visible to the eye at a glance. Upon entering, the first object that attracts attention is the Oriental Pagoda of Gunther, the great candy man. He has displayed unquestioned taste in getting up the establishment. It is an octagonal, uh, resplendent, with mirrors and rich in its burden of all sorts of excellent confections for those who manufacture Mr. Gunther deservedly has been placed at the head of the line in the trade of Chicago. Um, so he has like things like bonbons and chocolate and uh, domestic and foreign candies and confectionery is big at that time. And you'll see right here is this little setup or not so little setup, but a nice setup. And then over here, you'll see, this amazing marble and um, iron um, soda fountain. Just, just poof, unbelievable craftsmanship in that thing. So we look, and then you, um, at, next to Mr. G- in connection with Mr. Gunther's display, over near the door of the art gallery is Great Matthew's Soda Fountain, which is undoubtedly the grandest single piece in the exposition. It was manufactured by John Matthews in New York, the largest and finest manufacturer of fountains in the world, and who has taken premiums at London, New York, Paris, and Vienna. This is the finest soda fountain ever made. It is one of uh, the purest marble with silver and glass stands, nearly 15 feet high, and is in the shape of an octagonal pyramid. With its elegant finishing, it's worthy mentioning as a work of art. Close behind it is the apparatus for the manufacture of the soda water, which operation is open to the examination of visitors. Gunther's soda fountain is continually flowing, eight men being employed at the fountain to dispense the, this, this delightful nectar. And this is kind of a, an example. This is a later model. I could not find a picture of this octagonal um soda fountain of his but as you can see here from this picture i mean this guy wasn't messing around he was no joke these are legitimate massive soda fountains and here he's got what two main spigots and then two four six smaller ones so so we had some interesting um attractions at the fair right you had the center fountain which we talked about before, which was that large fountain direct. Uh, let's see, it was uh, finished by Messrs. Gold Brothers and Dibley. It is 31 feet high from the foundation. It has a diameter of 40 feet. The base is surrounded by an interesting collection of relics from the fire, consisting of melted glass, chinaware, iron, and ruins of all kinds. Now, how weird is that? 
around your spectacle for this fair, we're going to have all these ruins from the 1871 fire. In the water, there are two floating lilies with streams of water spurting from the blossoms, which will attract attention for their novelty. What's it going to attract attention to? These relics that you have, this kind of little voodoo shop you have set up here? I don't know. It just sounds creepy to me. There are a number of devices forming the subsidiary fountains, which there are 12, including two standing callus, which are worthy of mention. Around the fountain are groups of statuary and other devices, including a sphinx, griffins, lions, tigers, dogs, etc. In the water are artificial swans, ducks, frogs, etc., from all from the firm of Messrs. Gould Brothers and Dibley. So again, they get the Sphinx, the Griffins, the Lions, Tiger. Oh man, what a collection. The elevator. So again, they have 1873, they have an elevator. Very few visitors will fail to go up in the elevator. It affords a splendid view of the city and a look across the lake. Besides the ride to the top of the building, which is something to talk about, the elevator is 160 feet in height and was put up by the Crane Brothers Manufacturing Company. The crowd is so great and is being uh, it being impossible to accommodate all who apply. The managers have decided to charge a fee of 10 cents for each passenger. Now, mind you, that's pretty expensive because the, the, the fee was only 25 cents on Saturday and 50 cents any other day. Um, many persons who use the elevator have ridden up and down them know little of their mechanism. Here it is. Uh, okay. An examination of the self acting engine, the wheels winding the wire rope, etc. So they had a self acting engine running this elevator. Now there's two things that I found very interesting. Um, when I was reading through these books was one was this celebrated chrome steel they talked about. Okay. So they talked about this, um, uh, by the Kimbark brothers, they were a big company, but what they said is tests made with this steel at West point under the supervision of USA officers show the extraordinary strain of 198,970 pounds to the square inch. So it's 198,000, 99,000 pounds per square inch. The highest ever obtained with carbon steel was 132. So it's nearly, you know, 33% higher again. It is the only steel which would stand the strain required for the anchor bolts and staves to be used on the gigantic bridge connecting St. Louis, Missouri with Illinois, of which Captain Eads is the chief engineer. He makes an elaborate mention of the fact in his report in October of 1871, right? To say they need this new steel to make sure that these things can withstand a fire. But think about that. That's This is tremendous material we have here. This is the other one that blew my mind. And I knew kind of about this because I've seen it and I can't remember what it's called exactly now but they have essentially what is a marble paint it's a marble plaster that you just layer on like paint and it looks like marble when you're finished 
And I think this is along the lines of that. And this is called Manhattan artificial marble and artificial stone. Now, mind you guys, 1873 again, we're, we're talking about over 150 years ago. Upon the right middle aisle of the south end, just before reaching the small fountain, the visitor will find the space of the Freer Artificial Stone Company and Manhattan Marble Works. The fittings consist of various devices uh, in artificial stone, including a handsome bay window. Mr. George Freer, the original investor in the artificial stone and artificial marble, is a resident of Chicago and is personally superintending his business in the manufacture of marble in the state of Illinois. Uh, the works of the company, uh, who cares? It is only manufactured marble and contains uh, the same ingredients as the natural article which is quarried out of the earth. It takes a polish that is, if anything, finer than the other and is capable of sustaining an equal amount of strain. It can be made into all shapes and in imitation of all celebrated articles, the colors being blended and veined in the thickness and depth of the material as in natural marble, not being merely surface imitations like graining or the colors floating on an enameled slate. It can be sawed, dressed, and finished equal to the finest and most costly material. It is infinitely superior to all imitation marbles and combines with greater cheapness of production, the advantages of being harder, more manageable, and more easily applied. Nothing has ever been used equal to the effect of the Manhattan marble like artificial stone. It will rank among the most valuable inventions of the age. Its great point is its cheapness, costing about one-sixth of the price of the natural article, and being as durable and beautiful in every respect. Indeed, what a specimen of each side-by-side side is hard to tell the difference. Works for the manufacture of this marble have been established in New York, Boston, and other large cities, extending even to California. Now, mind you, California is about 20 years in. 1850s is the gold rush. We're going to have artificial marble out there. Manufacturers. Very interesting. A company with a large stock of $600,000 has recently purchased the patent right for the state of Missouri and have established their works in St. Louis. Every feature of this valuable invention points to success and bids fair to be one of the most prosperous patents of its age. This one just brings up so many questions, right? Where was this used? Was this used in exposition 20 years later how many of our memorials or great buildings that we're told are made of marble is really this and what is the name of that stuff oh i can't remember what the fake marble is called it's not geopolymer obviously that's the rock but i can't remember what the name is for this stuff somebody's gonna be screaming at their radio right now listening to this or phone so we have the gallery Okay, they were big into the gallery. It runs the circumference of the building is devoted to the exhibitors making displays of light goods. It is 2,000 feet in length and affords an excellent promenade with an attractive view and a grand array of articles in the multitudinous and eager throng of sightseers below. The most attractive displays are those of the railroads comprising products from the lands of the different uh, lines of their roads. There are eight roads represented. 
Their location is at the south end of the gallery. Okay. And so you see the railroad's heavy presence, the great engine. This is interesting. The immense Corliss engine, which runs the main portion of the machinery, is 175 uh, horsepower and works to a charm. It is one of the largest engines in the city and is larger than the one at Cincinnati and equal to three or four of those at Louisville. Again, he's swinging his dick around saying, oh, we're bigger than these guys. Again, we're better. We're bigger. Look how big it is. The Franklin Douglas Manufacturing Company is said to have the most creditable display taken as a whole of any of the large establishments represented. Um, yeah, it shows one of the Baxter's engines and the boilers combined. Its machines are numerous and interesting. Another cool thing I found was this cut glass by James Berry and Company. The beautiful workmanship in the cut glass window in the architectural hall has secured a prominent position in the art gallery yet it is the only a specimen of the quality of work displayed in the Palmer House. Uh, the parlors of the Tremont House and most of our best furnished banking offices, as well as in many elegant halls and private dwellings. So this guy's glass is just absolutely beautiful. So then we have the art gallery, okay, which was put together by this gentleman named John McGrath, Again, another another Chicago guy. Um, but the art gallery, again, this is one of the focuses, one of the focuses in, in the Columbian Exposition 20 years from now. And here was the art gallery bringing in this culture from other places to replace, to whitewash what actually took place here and replace it with the story that they wanted. And the, the culture that they wanted going forward. So let's look at the art gallery. The most attractive portion of the exposition is the art department, immediately opposite the main entrance. The gallery is divided into three rooms. The northern one is filled with photographs and Indian curiosities. The central hall is occupied exclusively with oil paintings and sculpture. And the southern room is crowded with watercolors, lithographs, engravings, architectural designs, and a variety of ornamental work. As you see these, just these beautiful collections of art. Now look how they have them stacked though. It's like no art gallery you would ever see. They're on top of each other. There's not that much room and they want to have all of these pieces. So it was only 20 by 120 feet, you know, size area. And it focused on contemporary American art with selections influenced by the National Academy of Design in New York City. These displays included Indian curiosities that we mentioned, sculptures, prints, and ornamental work, and casts of the Elgin marbles. Early iterations of the exposition featured paintings uh, by predominantly American artists such as William Merritt Chase, Frederick Church, Lockwood DeForest, Jean Lafarge, as well as George Innes and Winslow Homer from an earlier generation. However, as American collectors began traveling and buying more artworks in Europe and more American artists started studying in Europe, the exhibitions became increasingly international and cosmopolitan in content, including such artists as Henry Bacon, Bougereau, uh, Eakins, Hassam, and Tissot. 
Most of these art exhibits were curated by Sarah Hollowell, who would later work with Mrs. Uh, Potter Palmer to select art for the women's building at the World's Columbian Exposition. So again, you start seeing the ties. Obviously, you would expect if people worked on this and they're still around then, they're going to be brought in to work on that because this supposedly was an amazing success. The art exhibit alone would have taken some serious time to enjoy. It consisted of 167 paintings, 13 sculptures, 20 architecture and design, 7 engravings and chromes, 13 photographs, 10 waxwork, etc., and 3 stained glass. So we're not talking, they, they obviously put a lot of focus and detail into the art, into the culture. Again, this is going to show you where they want to take this. This is all programming, guys. The exposition became self-sustaining in 1877. It was the only exposition of its kind in the country that was self-sustaining, with the possible exception of the American Mechanics Institute of New York. The Interstate Exposition Building was raised, destroyed in 1892 to build the Art Institute, the World Congress Auxiliary of the World's Columbian Exposition, which occupied the new building from May 1st to October 31st, 1893, after which the Art Institute took possession November 1st of 1893. The Art Institute was officially open to the public in December 8th. 1893. So you look at this flyer from 1880. Um, you know, it's just a grand spectacle. I'm just really amazed by it. And then you look up here on the right and you'll see it, you know, in its glory. It's right built right there in the middle. There's buildings built right on top of it. But then we look down here in the bottom, and again, you're seeing that beautiful lighted space using the glass, using getting those different effects. And here we start looking at some of the interior, some of the displays that they had, the exhibits. Again, it looks a lot like the World Fair. These things were big, guys. This was, you know, again, we have to remember this is pre-internet. So this is advertising this is getting your product out there this is indoctrinating your people to show them what are they going to need this is the beginning of the consumer era where you have to bring people in think about a mall right that's what these are these are just 1800s malls temporary malls again we're looking at um a couple different displays here we have um which ones do we have these this is this fountain here up in the top so this is the fountain and then we're looking down here at the main aisleway of the exhibit and then i forgot what this is this is i forgot what wolf was over here but again i mean <laughs> you look at the design of the building it's man that's a death it's hard to believe all that work, those materials were acquired, shipped, built. Now, one of the things that was done after this was remodeled, and this was constantly changing the exposition. They would always adapt it, 
little bit every year. And that's how they ended up making money in 1877 and beyond. And one of the ways they did that was they added the Opera Festival Auditorium in 1885. And this was a great auditorium. Able, you know, able to hold concerts and gatherings and plays and all sorts of stuff. And I love this picture over here on the left because you're getting a glimpse of the day-to-day life, right? That horse and buggy style. But then in the background, again, look at the positioning, guys. It's dead center down that street is this beautiful dome. And I think there's something to that. I don't know exactly what, but there's something to these domes. And, you know, I I don't know if we're going to go Freud and go that these are, you know, motherly, feminine energies, or, or you know, this may be along the realm of the free energy concept, etheric energy concept, harnessing devices, things like that. But... I just love this picture because it shows the horse and buggy. I mean, even these old style buildings, they're better than any of the shit that we build today. Aesthetically and structurally, materials were better. Everything was better. And we act like we're so superior to these people, yet we just have better tools. We're just monkeys with good tools, but we don't have the true knowledge the natural knowledge, the old ways of doing things. We've disconnected from that for this consumerist, this, you know, quick fix, you know, uh, what is it called? I forgot what the, it's called when you just, you're just throwing out, nothing's reusable anymore. Everything's disposable. That's it. Disposable is the word I was looking for. Disposable consumerism is what we are trapped in now. I mean, look at this thing. It's just a, it's a beauty. This was 1874, a flyer for it. It says railroad excursions and cheap hotels, the grandest American exhibition of the year. Novelties in every department. Don't fail to see it. And this was actually one that you could see in a day right? It wasn't one of those overwhelming things like Chicago where you had to spend multiple days there. This is pretty straightforward, okay? We're looking at the layouts here, just a little, another artist rendering in 1887, 1875 rendering here. Again, there's a lot of traffic around this thing. They make it seem like there was good movement inside and out. And then we come to 1891. Open for the last time, the 19th annual. So I think this is 1892, by the way. Um, annual display of the Interstate Exposition. Old timer indulges in some reminiscence of the opening of the building in 1873, just before the panic. Few exhibits in place yet, but many promised in the curse of the week. Great preparations for the floral display, right? So this is the, it was open one last time, and then it was replaced by the Palace of Fine Arts. Okay, look at this building. 
this was one of those spectacles from the World's Fair, right? It's built right on the water. Absolutely beautiful, massive Greco bow arts. You know, it has the dome. It's it's just a beautiful, beautiful structure. And so they built that right on top. The Palace of Fine Arts at the 1893 Columbian Exposition was designed by Charles Atwood and D.H. Burnham and Company. Unlike the other White City buildings, it was constructed with a brick substructure under its plaster facade. After the World's Fair, it initially housed the Columbian Museum, which evolved into the Field Museum of Natural History. When a Field Museum building opened near downtown Chicago in 1921, the museum organization moved and the former site was left vacant. The new Museum of Science and Industry opened to the public in three stages between 1933 and 1940. The first opening ceremony took place in the Century of Progress exposition. Two of the museum's presidents, a number of curators and other staffs and exhibits came to MSI from the Century of Progress event. So we look at it and man, they just let that thing go. 1893, 1925, it looks a little dilapidated. And then you look at it today and it is quite the spectacle. So, um, yeah, it's 500 feet in length by 320 feet with 50 foot high ceilings. At the corners are projecting pavilions of similar height, giving accent of the design. The clear stories in the roofs over the several courts are fashioned with level skylines and from their central point intersections and spacious rotunda to an elevation of 125 feet with nearly half that diameter, a dome surmounted by Martin's historic statue of fame. The principal entranceways in the center of each of the main facades are in the form of porticos with the columns of Ionic order, and above them are attics on the plas- uh, pil- pilasters of which are figures those resembling the Temple of Aggregentum. In the middle of the end of the facades are similar porticos, but less imposing scale. I mean, this is just a massive, massive structure. And these pictures don't really do it justice, unfortunately. But again, this is one of the few permanent structures from that World Fair. And and if we go back here, the only thing they're saying was different, that this had the, the difference between these temporary structures that they burned down or destroyed and this is the brick substructure underneath, which I find pretty interesting because that's the only difference. They added a little bit of brick to make it permanent. I don't know. So now, um, again, I want to just kind of show you Chicago. So we look at Chicago. This is a map of entire. Now the World's Fair is down over here in this little sliver. Okay, now we want to look at the fire. The fire burned up in here. So it had nothing to do with anything down here, which you think the focus would be in the north and and getting that back up to speed. But hey, they decided to go with this glass palace. And we look and 
So at uh, right here is the way it looked for the fair in 1893. And you had the Palace of Fine Arts on the um, midway over here. You had the giant Ferris wheel that they brought down to St. Louis for the 1904 World Fair. You know, just broke it down and rebuilt it down there. And then we have the horticulture building, the uh, wooden islands, which ho housed the Japanese exhibit. And then we have the Statue of the Republic, a.k.a. Columbia. So what do we have today? Today, on that same midway, now we have an ice rink where the Ferris wheel once stood. The Museum of Science and Industry is now where the Palace of Fine Arts was. You have the Barack Obama presidential uh, center site right where the horticulture building was. And then we have a replica Statue of the Republic there today. Why? Because they torched the first one in a ceremonial send-off. And if you have any questions about that, go to the my World Fair episode and I explain it pretty clearly how they had a little ceremony to burn her down. But guys, that's all I have on this crazy glass palace of Chicago. Um, I hope you find it interesting. I really did because I didn't know anything about it. And again, it's one of these buildings. They built it in 90 days. I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to some of my construction buddies or my construction people out there, listeners, my architects. What do you guys think about this? Is it possible? Does it make sense? Again, this was obviously a permanent structure. It was meant to last. It was meant to be around forever. And then it's such a spectacle, it, it does its purpose. Then they destroy it for the World Fair. Really, really interesting, especially when you think about the World Fair timing. Where did they want it? Well, some people wanted it in Lincoln Park. Burnham wanted it in Jackson Park. And so this was right there near Jackson Park. So this had to go, even though the majority of supposed, and again, it's so hard to really wrap your head around this because with the fires and everything that the the way you look at the city and what's going on down there it's supposedly this area down here is just strictly swampland but they drive piles in the ground and build the world's biggest convention centers on top of it on top of pillars drive piles hundreds of them an indefinite number of them to be in fact guys i question that <laughs> I, I really have to. Now, do I know what happened? No. Am I saying they didn't build this? Not at all. I'm just saying I don't believe 90 days. I don't believe that it's built on piles. You know, driven wooden stakes in the ground is holding up this massive facility. It's the same thing they said for a lot of these Chicago buildings. And I just don't see how structurally that makes sense. And I've talked to some architects about this. I've talked to like like the raising of Chicago. That's one I'm going to dive into a little more down the road too. Because it's just, 
in 1850s, supposedly they lifted entire city blocks and moved them, and the people were still in the buildings. Didn't even know what was going on. Ah, just living their life, and hey, we're just going to pick this building up and move it down the block. Don't worry about it. You can just go on with your life. Act like we're not even here. What? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's craziness. So what I have planned is uh, here in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to get together with our good buddy, Matthew Smith who also has an affinity for Chicago like I do and has some family history tied to Chicago and uh, construction in Chicago and architecture in Chicago. So who better to dive into this with than our good buddy, Matthew Smith. And I, you know, I really cherish that guy. He is salt to the earth, great person, so knowledgeable and uh, he's somebody that needs to be heard because he has a lot of good information. And he is one of those minds out there that isn't going to be swayed by the hot topic. He's going to do his research, much like we do over here. We're going to keep digging. And I, again, guys, if you have any more information on this place, if you have any sources of information, feel free to send them over. I'm always down to read it. Like I said, I can only find three books on this. A um, couple of internet articles, but for the most part, they were shitty and wrong. And uh, But it is what it is. This is another one of those, why didn't it come up? Why wouldn't it be mentioned in history? I mean, this was the biggest convention center at the time. It's just an afterthought. I've ne I'd never heard of it, and I've dug... I wouldn't say extensively into Chicago, but I've, you know, I've got probably 25, 30 books on Chicago in the 1800s. And I, that's how I came about this. I was reading a book um, that we'll get into eventually by uh, Stanley Applebaum about the photographs of the World Fair. And I'm reading it and, and it came, it mentioned, it mentioned the glass palace of Chicago and construction and how one of the guys that built this or had something to do with the design or building of this was tied in with the world fair. And I was like, Oh boy, I'd never heard of this. So I went and looked at this building. I'm like, Holy shit. I sent it to Matthew and said, what do you think of this? He goes, it's a crystal palace. Well, yeah. That's Chicago, 1873. I'd never heard of it. And I hadn't either. So again, guys, we're, we're, we're uncovering, we're turning over rocks constantly finding new stuff. But that's the fun of this. Now, are we saying it's all bullshit? No. Am I saying this is a Tartarian building? No. But what I'm saying is the narrative that we're fed doesn't really add up. Where this building was built, when it was built, how long it took to be built, the materials that were required to build it, it just doesn't add up. And it's a repeating pattern we see over and over again. And there's little documentation, right? You, you would think that if this spectacle is going up, they're going to be taking pictures of it left and right. I mean, fuck, half you people cannot go a meal without snapping a photo of your plate. Yet these people built the largest convention center in America at the time, and we have zero construction photos out there zero demolition photos of the largest convention center in america at the time 
None. It just happened. It came and went, and it is what it is, apparently. <laughs> and that's where I find it hard to believe. So, I beat this horse enough tonight. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Like I said, we're going to be digging. We're, we're going to stay in, in Chicago for a little bit. Um, I got another kind of rant episode I've been working on for a little bit about all the nonsense that's going on right now in the world and what we have to do to stay out of it and make sure we keep our energy invested into shit that benefits us and not get wrapped up in the spider web, not get caught in the traps. So I will, I will be dropping that eventually sometime too, but uh, guys, I thank you. I hope everyone enjoyed. Go check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash the great deception podcast for all my video content. Um, and Monday night master debaters, there's about 35 to 40 books out there from the 1800s that are great resources. And uh, if you, there's anything else you want me to post on out there, let me know. I have a, I'm trying to, uh, comprise a small digital library of old books so that you know should this shit hit the fan i got these things at least on a hard drive somewhere and uh i can go reference them but this is another weird one glass palace of chicago 1873 and the interstate industrial expositions or a couple others louisville and, and cincinnati if you guys are interested go check those out so guys hit me up on instagram at the great deception podcast if you got any questions or anything go follow do me a favor leave a review like share the podcast with your friends and above all else stay strong and question everything It's about total control, mental, physical, spiritual, every way, shape, form possible. You have to remember how big of a conspiracy this is. This isn't talking about just the JFK thing or isn't talking about just 9-11. It's on an umbrella kind of system to where it is the biggest deception that there is. It actually exposes every other deception and nothing else brings down the power of the elite because it really exposes education, science, the economy, television, museums, universities. Think of all the things that have been fooled. I feel worse for the people that are out there building satellites, the people that are out there actually working for these space agencies, the people out there teaching in schools as professors, because they would all come to the conclusion eventually, once this gets out, that they've all been contributing to the lie.